0: They're, these are mostly short teachings, they're not long Dhamma talks, but they're short teachings that uh, Ajahn Jayasaro has included within the, the narrative and story of Lumpur's life and, and work and his um, teaching career. So the first one is about listening to Dhamma. Keep listening, keep listening. Don't just believe what you hear and don't disbelieve. Make yourself neutral. Keep listening. It will bring good results, and there's no danger in it. The peril, the danger, lies in believing too much in what you hear, or in disbelieving. Listen and contemplate. This is what practice is about, being a listener, and being one who reflects on things. As you don't know yet whether the things that you like and dislike are true or not, The Buddha said that, for the time being, you should keep listening. If you don't, you'll just follow your own opinions about things. And if you do that, then you'll develop wrong view. And your practice won't advance. The wise person is one who keeps looking, contemplating, continually reflecting. The true Dhamma is not something that can be communicated with words. You can't appropriate someone else's knowledge. If you take someone else's knowledge, then you have to meditate on it. Listening to someone else and understanding what they say doesn't mean that your defilements will come to an end. You have to take that understanding and then chew on it and digest it until it's a sure thing and really your own. Speaking about uh, working with defilements and difficulties, obstacles, uh, coarseness, the, the roughness of our, our personality, our feelings, our, our mental habits, and, uh, and verbal and ha- habits and habits of action. It's not simple. It's not possibly. Sorry, it's not possible to simply train the mind, neglecting actions and speech. These things are, neg- are connected: mind, actions, and speech. Practicing with the mind until it's smooth, refined and beautiful is similar to producing a finished wooden pillar or a plank like these beautiful pillars that make up the temple here. Before you can obtain a pillar that is smooth, varnished and attractive you must first go and cut a tree down. Then you must cut off the rough parts, the roots and the branches before you split it, saw it and work it. Practicing with the mind is the same as working with the tree You have to work with the coarse things first, the rough and difficult things. You have to destroy the rough parts, cut away the roots, the bark, everything which is unattractive, in order to obtain that which is attractive and pleasing to the eye. You have to work through the rough to reach the smooth. And he uses the example of coconut trees, not very familiar to many people living in this country, but many of us have been in Asia or grown up in those countries. This is a a familiar presence in our lives. The coconut palm absorbs the water from the earth and pulls it up through the trunk. By the time the water reaches the coconut itself, it has become clean and sweet, even though it's derived from that plain water in the ground. The coconut palm is nourished by what are essentially the coarse earth and the water elements, which it absorbs and purifies. And these are transformed into something far sweeter and purer than before. In the same way, the practice of sila, samadhi, and panya, in other words, magga, the path, it has coarse beginnings, rough, uh, uh, plain beginnings, but As a result of training and refining the mind through meditation and reflection, it becomes increasingly subtle. And talking about mindfulness. The mind is like a room with a single chair. When mindfulness sits firmly on that seat facing the door, then any guest entering the room is known immediately. Without a chair to sit on, no guest stays for long. Mindfulness is the nurse and protector of samadhi. It is the dhamma which allows all other wholesome dhammas to arise in balance and harmony. Mindfulness is life. At any moment that you lack mindfulness, it's as if you are dead. Lack of mindfulness is called heedlessness. Heedlessness and it robs your words and actions of all meaning. Whatever form of recollection mindfulness takes, it gives rise to self-awareness, wisdom, all kinds of good qualities. Any Dhamma which lacks mindfulness is incomplete. Mindfulness is what governs standing, walking, sitting and lying down. It's not only during sitting meditation that mindfulness is required. Outside of formal meditation periods, you must have a constant mindfulness and alertness and give care and attention to your actions. If you do that, a sense of wise shame will arise. You'll feel ashamed of improper actions or speech. As the sense of shame becomes stronger, then so will restraint. With strong restraint, there is no heedlessness. Wherever you go, mindfulness must be present. The Buddha said, practice mindfulness a great deal. Develop it a great deal. Mindfulness is the Dhamma that will guard over your past and present actions and those that you are about to perform. It's a great benefit to you. Know yourself at every moment and then you will have a constant sense of right and wrong. That awareness of the rightness or wrongness of everything that occurs in your mind, that will arouse a sense of wise shame. And you will refrain from acting in bad or mistaken ways. So this uh, term, wise shame, um, is a uh, hiri, uh, and its partner is otapa. Uh, and I think uh, a uh, Ajahn Jayasaro's translation of otapa is a um, uh, a skillful fear of consequences or wise fear. Of consequences, and so uh, here at the temple at Amravati, uh, outside the the doors, you might have noticed these two uh, two paintings done by Pang Chinasai, who passed away last year. So, they, these two paintings, the Deva with a one with a with a blue aura, one with a pink aura, they represent Hiri and Otapa, and Lumbosameto. Particularly wanted to have those images here at the Amravati temple, so they represent in that. Uh, Say symbolic form, these qualities of hiri and otapa. So that sense of uh, the wholesomeness and unwholesomeness, uh, uh, as uh, Ajahn Jayasaro puts it, wise shame. So that sense of when we're mindful, when there's a true heedfulness, then uh, along with being aware of the, what's going on as, uh, as an action or a sound of a word or a, a, a thought or a feeling, hiri and otapa help to identify This is something wholesome, this is something unwholesome, this is something neutral. So it's a a part of mindfulness when it's developed fully. And so sometimes words like shame or fear have an off-putting quality. But hiri and otapa, they work by being uncomfortable. That's how they do their job. Like Physical pain protects your body by being unpleasant. If we cut ourselves and it felt really, really nice, we'd do more of it. You know, if we if we uh, twisted our ankle and we, we uh, uh enjoyed the, the damage that we experienced, we'd do more, we'd be twisting more of our limbs. <laughs> Pain protects the body by being unpleasant, by being uncomfortable. That's how it does its job. So, in exactly the same way, hiri and Otapa, they're a product of mindfulness, so they're they're called the lokopala, the protectors of the world. So the the the, or Dhamma part, the protectors of Dhamma. They, they, they do their job of protection by being uncomfortable, and so then they a clear signal when the the mind is drifting towards what is unwholesome and it's, it's uncomfortable. And similarly, when the mind accents on on a thought or a speech or a, a feeling that is wholesome, then the, the the experience is one of pleasantness and delight, joyfulness. So that's how. Uh, mindfulness and, Hiri and otapa work together, and that's why they're the sort of protective spirits of the temple like <laughs> that's one, the the symbol that Lumpossome wanted to encourage. So then talking about um, working with uh, the hindrances, the nivarna or the these obstacles of the mind. When something arises in your mind, no matter if it's something that you like, or something that you dislike, something you think is right, or something you think is wrong, cut it right off by reminding yourself, it's, change- it's changeful, it's not a, a sure thing, it's anichang, it's in a state of change. doesn't matter what it is, just chop right through it, changeful, changeful, anichang, anichang. Use this single axe to chop through the mental states. Everything is subject to change. Where can you find anything real and solid? If you see this instability, then the value of everything decreases. Mental states are all worthless. Why would you want things of no value? Even if your mind finds no peace, merely sitting cross-legged and putting forth effort is already a fine thing. This is the truth. You could compare it to being hungry and having nothing to eat except plain rice. You've got nothing to eat with the rice, and you feel upset. What I'm saying is, it's good that you've got rice to eat. Plain rice is better than nothing at all, isn't it? If plain rice is all you've got, then eat it up. Practice is the same. Even if you experience only a very small amount of calm, it's still a good thing. So this is a very common teaching that uh, Lumpur Cha encouraged to develop that perception of of maineya and uh, with, uh, as he said, feelings of like or dislike, uh, judgments, um, plans for the future, uh, the, uh, what you're going to do after t- today at Dhamravati, <laughs> uh, what you're going to eat today, where you're going to go tomorrow, my ne, my ne, it's uncertain any it's not a sure thing the way we judge other people oh, that person's really great my ne, that person's awful yeah you know, my ne. and to to use this as a kind of filter to uh, say see more or like a, like glasses <laughs> like I, I need for reading uh, the lenses that help the eye to see more clearly uh, that um you know, the judgments that we make of this is good this is bad i uh, this is uh, this is beautiful this is ugly those can only be part of the story they can't be the whole picture they can't they can't be the whole thing they are not absolutely true or real or uh, or to be to be trusted so this uh, simple teaching of uh, is it like an axe that chops through uh, all the you know, all the wood uh, that is a, a very, very helpful way of maintaining a, a balanced and peaceful experience in life. So when we so easily say, oh, this is good, if we recollect, well, that's what I call it, but is that the whole story? There's a, a relaxation. Or if we say, oh, that's awful, this is terrible, um, then we uh, recognize, well, that's, uh, is that the whole story? Uh, that too is my near. it's not a sure thing. And then if we apply that kind of reflection and then notice what happens in our heart, there's a a relaxation, a spaciousness, there's a kwamsa bhajai, there's a peacefulness. And this is talking about the right amount and working with nature. The Buddha taught us to move forward, not too slowly and not too fast, but to make the mind just right. There's no need to get worked up about it all. If you are, then you should reflect that practice is like planting a tree. You dig a hole and place the tree in it. After that, it's your job to fill in the earth, put fertilizer on it, to water the tree and protect it from pests. That's your duty. It's what the orchard owners have to do. But whether the tree grows fast or slow is its own business. It's nothing to do with you. If you don't know the limits of your own responsibilities, you'll end up trying to do the work of the tree as well, and you'll suffer. All you have to do is see to the fertilizer, the watering, keeping the insects away. The speed of growth of the tree is the tree's business. If you know what's your responsibility and what is not, then your meditation will be smooth and relaxed, not stressed and fretful. When your sitting is calm, then watch the calmness. When it's not calm, then watch that. You mustn't let yourself suffer if your mind's not calm. It's a mistake to rejoice when your mind is calm or to mope, to be unhappy or miserable when it's not. Would you let yourself suffer about a tree, about the sunshine or the rain? Things are what they are, and if you understand that, your meditation will go well so keep traveling along the path keep practicing keep attending to your duties and meditating at the appropriate times as for what you get from it what you attain what calmness you achieve that will depend on the potency of the virtue you have accumulated your barometer just as the orchard owner knows the extent of their responsibilities towards the tree and keeps in good humor so, when the practitioner understands their duties in their practice, then just rightness establishes itself naturally. And then, speaking about sustaining the attitude of meditation in all circumstances, meditation isn't tied. To standing or walking or sitting or lying down. As we can't live completely motionless and inactive, we have to incorporate all these four postures into our practice. And the guiding principle to be relied on in each of them is the generation of wisdom and rightness. Rightness means right view samadhiti, and is another word for wisdom. Wisdom can arise at any time in any one of the four postures. In each posture, you can think evil thoughts or good thoughts, mistaken thoughts or correct thoughts. Disciples of the Buddha are capable of realizing the Dhamma, whether standing, walking, sitting, or lying down. So, where does this practice, which is carried out in the four postures, find its focal point, its center? It finds it in the generation of right view because once there is right view then there comes to be right resolve sama sankapo, right speech, sama and the rest of the Eightfold Path. Thus it will be better to change our way of speaking. Instead of saying that we quote, come out of samādhi, unquote we should say merely that we quote, change our posture blyan-iriabot quote, unquote Samadhi means stability of mind. When you emerge from samadhi, then maintain that stability in your mindfulness and alertness, in your object, in your actions, all the time. It's inter- it's incorrect to think that at the end of a meditation session you've finished work. Put forth a constant effort. It's through maintaining a constancy of effort in your work, in your actions, and in your mindfulness and alertness that your meditation will develop just as an aside um, venerable ananda was the the one person known to have realized full and complete enlightenment outside of the four postures it, uh, it said that the the night before the the first council after the the the, uh, the buddha's Parinibbana, in uh, in may Visakha puja uh, the sangha had gathered uh, in Rajagaha, uh, the Satapani Cave to spend the the rains there, and they were going to have a a a a, a, a council f- for the uh, whole of the three months of the rains to recollect the Dhamma teachings and the Vinaya, and Venerable Ananda was known to have a, a perfect recall, so he was uh, uh, expected to have the job of remembering all of the suttas, all of the Dhamma teachings, but because he wasn't an Arahant, the other four hundred ninety nine monks that were gathered there were all Arahants and and, uh, Venerable Mahakasapa said if Ananda isn't an Arahant, he can't join the meeting. So uh, no pressure. (laughs) So the night before the the meeting was supposed to begin Venerable Ananda was putting forth uh, extreme effort. Uh, He was an anagami, a non-returner but he hadn't realized Arahantship because his attention had been caught up for so many years 25 years of being the Buddha's attendant Arranging all his visitors and looking after his health and well-being and protecting him and looking after his many uh, duties, so uh, he had uh, the uh, the the task to realize arahantship before the next day when the meeting was supposed to begin, and so uh, he worked very hard, sitting and walking medita- meditation through the night, and he saw the the sky getting lighter and dawn was coming, and he he had the thought, oh well. I've been I've been uh, meditating all night, making great effort. Uh, the dawn is coming. It's going to be a long day anyway, so I better get some rest. Um, uh, because yeah, I haven't I haven't reached full and complete enlightenment, but uh, yeah, never mind. The day is coming, so uh, he decided to lie down and take a rest for a little while. So it's said that. Uh, when uh, he sat down on the on the dian on the the bench the the low bench in his kuti, he said, after his feet left the ground and before his head met the pillow, he realized full and complete enlightenment. Mm. And so, uh, it's uh, he said the Venerable Ananda was the one one person to realize enlightenment outside of the four postures. And um it's it's also a very interesting in, uh, and helpful in terms of meditation teaching because often it's when we're really trying, we got a, a, we want to get somewhere, we've got a fixed goal, and we're, we're working and working and working, but the very efforting is what's getting in the way. And as soon as he relaxed and said, oh well, it, it hasn't worked, there's a relaxation. But all of the necessary conditions were there. All, everything that was needed to, for enlightenment to be completed was there. It was just his... His efforting was getting in the way, and when that switched off, then ding, <laughs> or the the uh, all of the conditions came together, and he realised A- hardship at that time. And the story goes that just to emphasise that he had uh, finished his work, as they say, he arrived at the meeting floating off the ground, three feet in the air. So he floated into the the meeting in the lotus posture, oh, yeah, off the ground, just to say, just in case any of you have got any doubt about whether I'm qualified for this meeting. That's what the sto- how I heard the story, anyway. I don't think I was there, but uh, uh, that's how the story is passed on. So. You are living in the world and following the conventions of the world, but without attaching to them. When you have to go somewhere, say you're going. When you're coming, you say you're coming. Whatever you're doing, you use the conventions and language of the world. But it's like the two liquids in the bottle. They're in the same bottle, but don't mix together. You live in the world, but at the same time, you you, you remain separate from it. So he's talking about the mind that, uh, please, people who are outside in the lobby, please do come in. You're very welcome. So you can invite the folks in there, people gathering in the lobby. They can come in. So Lung Cha often used this image of oil and water or or paint and oil in a paint can uh, separating out. So the awareness of the world and the objects of the world, they are intrinsically separate. They're, they are immiscible. They don't mix. Um, and that uh, he's talking about the attitude to our, our life, our actions, our speech, our responsibilities, our family, our work, that um, there's... Uh, You're living in the world, but you don't have to have an attachment or identification with the world. That There there can be that knowing of the world, but without being entangled or limited by the world. Just like oil and water, or oil in in a bottle, or oil and paint in in a can. The mind doesn't create things around sense contact. Once contact has occurred, you automatically let go. The mind discards the experience. This means that if you are attracted to something, you experience the attraction in the mind, but don't attach or hold on fast to it. If you have a reaction of aversion, there's simply the experience of aversion arising in the mind and nothing more. There isn't any sense of self arising that attaches and gives meaning and importance to the aversion. In other words, the mind knows how to let go. It knows how to set things aside. Why is it able to let go and put things down? Because the presence of insight means you can clearly see the harmful results that come from attaching to all those mental states. When you see forms, the mind remains undisturbed. When you hear sounds, the mind remains undisturbed. The mind neither takes a position for or against any sense objects experienced. This is the same for all sense contact, whether it be through the eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, or mind. Whatever thoughts arise in the mind can't disturb you. You're able to let go. You may perceive something as desirable, but you don't attach to that perception or give it any special importance. It simply becomes a condition of mind to be observed without attachment. This is what the Buddha described as experiencing sense objects as just that much. In Thai language be kēnan, it's just that. The sense spaces are still functioning and experiencing sense objects, but without the process of attachment stimulating movements to and fro in the mind. Having gained such clear and penetrating insight means it's sustained at all times. Whether you are sitting in meditation with your eyes closed, or even if you're doing something with your eyes open. Whatever situation you find yourself in, be it in formal meditation or not, the clarity of insight remains. When you have unwavering mindfulness of the mind within the mind, you don't forget yourself. Whether standing, walking, sitting or lying down, the awareness within makes it impossible to lose mindfulness. It's a state of awareness that prevents you forgetting yourself. Mindfulness has become so strong that it's self-sustaining to the point where it becomes the natural state of the mind. These are the results of training and cultivating the mind, and it's here where you go beyond doubt. And uh, the last thing I'll read this morning... um, since uh, half an hour has gone by nearly already, is a poem that Ajahnjaya Saro wrote uh, dedicated uh, to Lumpur Cha and about Lumpur Cha, That's so uh, his description of, his, uh, of living with Lumpur Cha and his experience of his presence and his teaching. Lumpur, you were a fountain of cool stream water in the square of a dusty town and You were the source of that stream, on a high, unseen peak. You were, Lung that mountain itself, unmoved, but variously seen. Lung you were never one person. You were always the same. You were the child laughing at the emperor's new clothes and ours. You were a demand to be awake, the mirror of our faults, Ruthlessly kind Lumpur, you were the essence of our texts The leader of our practice And the proof of its results You were a blazing bonfire on a windy, bone-chilled night How we miss you! Lumpur, you were the sturdy stone bridge we had dreamed of You were at ease in the present As if it were your own ancestral land Lumpur, you were the bright full moon that we sometimes obscured with clouds. You were ironwood. You were banyan. You were bodhi. Pomea Kruba Ajan, mother, father, respected teacher. Lumpur, you were a freshly dripping lotus in a world of plastic flowers. Not once did you lead us astray. You were a lighthouse for our flimsy rafts on the heaving sea. Lumpur, you are beyond my words of praise and all description. Humbly, I place my head beneath your feet. So these are all, uh, if you are wondering, oh, those are great. Where can I find those? You can hunt yourselves, <laughs> hunt for yourselves uh, in the, this wonderfully large book uh, composed by Ajahn Jayasara and um, find them again. But I would say that uh, the words you are looking for are, are the very fabric of your own heart. We hear those words, we go, yes! And we 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 love the place the words take us to. But it's not the words that matter, it's the place where the words take us. That's what matters. You can understand that, so that uh, we hear the words, we have that that feeling of appreciation and and inspiration. But uh, it, it, as Lumpur himself said, it's it's not it's not the words. Dhamma is is inexpressible. <laughs> you can't really put Dhamma into words. But it's the words can lead to that realization of Dhamma, which is experienced as as um, peacefulness, spaciousness, and, and brightness of heart.